This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. So that brings us up to the final speaker of the day, and I'm going to let Tumi introduce him. But just before I do that, a quick little anecdote. One of, in fact, Leandro, who was on earlier, emailed me a few days ago a clip of Tendai's house shown on top billing from 2018, I think it was. And now I actually see, you'll see now he's sitting in the room I was going to refer to. And the one thing that was missing in his interview that day was a World Cup winner's medal. And he it was on his to-do list to complete getting that before you know he retired. So I'm happy to say that Tendai, I guess you can tick that box. And your house looks amazing, by the way, in that Bri area. So I'm going to hand over to Tumi to introduce the next and final section. Tumi, I hand over to you. Well, thank you so much for that, Trevor. Hi, everyone. I'm Dimisha. Well, the beast of a year that has been 2020 has certainly had an impact on every single one of us. One way or the other, we have felt it. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced us to change how we live our lives. No compromises, no bargains. We've all just had to adapt. Today, I have the honor of speaking to a man who needs very little introduction. He has spent his career defying odds, uh, trailblazing, and he's also shown uh, his great ability to adapt. He's also widely known for rousing supporters with, uh, while they scream his name, Beast. This is actually a name that has stuck with him since he was nine years old. Ladies and gentlemen, the former South African national rugby player, and he also played for the Sharks in Super Rugby, Tendai Mtawarira joins us this morning to share his experiences both on and off the playing field. Good morning to you, Tendai. So lovely to have you with us today. Uh, good morning to me and everyone on the call. Thank you so much for that heartfelt introduction. Uh, I'm really glad to engage with your team today. Fantastic. As they've said, you have had an absolutely phenomenal career. Just looking at some of the list of your accomplishments, which include becoming the third most capped Springbok in South Africa. But before we talk about those career highlights, and of course, the World Cup will definitely be one of them. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. At the age of 16, you made the decision that you wanted to play professional rugby. But a lot has happened since then and now. now tell us a little bit about what drove you and got you to this point. Yeah, so basically, uh, when I was at the age of 16, back in Harare, in Zimbabwe, uh, and I pretty much discovered that I was really talented in the game of rugby. And my my dream was to ultimately pursue you know, a professional career. But, uh, you know, in Zimbabwe, there was no professional league. So I obviously looked to South Africa as a place to actually come and ply my trade. So I was very fortunate in my last year of schooling, I got scouted by the Sharks. And they invited me to come to the Sharks Academy. And I did the, the move to South Africa in 2005. And uh, yeah, it was full of challenges. You know, there was a lot of things that were waged against me. But because of my, you know, my determination to, to make it, you know, my drive, my hunger, and the willingness to never, ever, ever give up, you know, that's why I was able to defy the odds and break so many barriers. But uh, I guess, uh, you know, I've got a lot of people to thank as well, you know, tools along the way. Yeah, it's part of the journey. And I mean, I suppose one of the rewards was putting on that Springbok rugby jersey on for the very first time. Tell us, how did that feel? 
Yeah, that was an incredible moment in my career. You know, I remember singing the the national anthem with immense pride and just being, you know, privileged to to be um, you know, among some giants. And my first, you know, my first test match, guys like Victor Matthew, John Smith, you know, Bucky's Boyd, uh, you know, Scott Berger, guys that had done a lot in their career. So for me, I just wanted to contribute to the team, you know, from that very first game. So I really, you know, enjoyed my first test. And uh, yeah, I think it was a journey that started and uh, lasted a very, very long time. But uh, that first gap is something that is, you know, imprinted in my mind. I'll never forget. Tinda, on your first answer, you spoke about how obviously this has not been an easy journey. Everybody faces challenges and COVID or uh, the year 2020 has certainly showed us that. And I think sometimes being on the outside, we're not always privy to the personal struggles that a person is faced with. I want to go back to the year 2010 when your health in particular came under the spotlight. And right now I am referring to your heart issues. There were remarks that were made in the media that this would actually impact your ability to play. But you came back and played probably one of the best rugby's of your career. Yeah, yes, indeed. You know, yeah, that was a tough time. You know, a very low moment in my in my in my career because, you know, when uh, when they mention heart, you know, heart condition as a sportsman, you know, the first thing you fear is that your career is ended. And for me, it was really scary, you know. And uh, I remember sitting down with a cardiologist and he, he told me that it actually wasn't something that was detrimental to my career, but it was something I had to eventually get sorted out. And there were articles, you know, about my condition and a lot of journalists were saying, am I ever going to be the same again? But for me, you know, I blocked out all the negativity and you know, I blocked out all the, the negative energy, the negative talk, and I focused on my family. And I focused on my faith and I listened to my mentors and I had a bit of a tunnel vision. I told myself, you know what, I'm going to get over this eventually. I had to go for treatment in Cape Town where they had to put me under, put a catheter through my groin all the way to my heart. And it was pretty scary, you know, and I had to sit out for about three months afterwards and not play anything, play any rugby and just relax and recover. So during that time, I used it to actually, you know, work on myself to get better, work on certain things that would just make me better when I go back onto the field. So I, I really believe that the best was, you know, ahead of me. So I always kept on telling me that and my wife told me that, you know, my dad told me that, you know, you're going to play your best rugby, you know, ever. And it, it happened that way. When I came back, my mental, you know, mindset and everything was just aligned. So when I got back, I was fresh, revitalized and ready to go so it was like a new lease of life yeah uh, certainly that mindset uh, you know was something that you you definitely had to get right not only being physically strong but mentally strong as well i want to go back to the 2019 world cup you know tell us about the experience the culture and of course you know bringing back the trophy but uh, as you mentioned having to have the right mindset is important uh, but tell us what was it like for you being in the camp and given the fact that you had already lost to japan in 2015 how did you navigate that? No, yeah, firstly, Japan was amazing, uh, probably the most awesome experience of my entire career. You know, from the time when we arrived, you know, in Tokyo, the people were just so welcoming, you know, and they just made us feel at home and they went out of their way, you know, to do so much for us. So it was great, you know. But the fact of the matter is that they tried to play a, a mental game with us. You know, obviously on that game in 2015, you know, the one we lost. So there was posters everywhere. 
with that, you know, with that victory, you know, and Brighton. And they were just kind of trying to say, hey, you might be here feeling at home, but eventually we want to knock you out. So it was already like something that was in our psyche. And Rassi said it, you know, to, to the team that we're possibly going to meet Japan in the, in the quarterfinal. You just kind of saw it, you know, and yeah, and it actually happened. And uh, yeah, that, that quarterfinal was really tough, you know, because we were so, you know, happy in Japan and loving the people. But for that one week, they were the enemy, you know, we couldn't just uh, smile and take photos uh, and uh, really engage with them, as, you know, in that particular week because we we're so focused on our journey and where we wanted to go. So, yeah, it was pretty tough to knock them out, but I guess revenge for for that game in 2015. So, yeah, I'm just happy that, yeah, you know, yeah, we resolved it. <laughs> Um, Tinda, I just want to shift focus a little bit. Coming back to sports in South Africa, unfortunately, sports is quite political and race does always come into it. You entered the South African rugby scene at a time when South African rugby was still predominantly you know, white dominated. And you've had to now break those barriers, not only as a black African, but also as a black Zimbabwean born player. Yes, indeed. Uh, to me, uh, it was it was quite tough, you know. Yes, uh, you know, I aspired to get to the to the to the highest level, you know, play for the Springboks, win a World Cup. But uh, you know, from the onset, you know, it was really tough to get in an environment where everything was just Afrikaans driven, and you know, you felt like you are alone for pretty much the first six years of my career in a box jersey i was predominantly the only black guy in the team so it was quite tough you know i didn't feel really welcome i obviously did my job really well but there were other things that i was really not happy about you know there was no diversity no inclusion you know of everyone in the team so it was really tough and uh yeah so a lot of black players actually fell out of the system because of this you know, they fell out of the system because of that that whole, you know, culture barrier. And uh, yeah, I think for myself, being a Zimbabwean as well, you know, I also, you know, uh, came across xenophobic attacks, you know, along the way. But I guess, and I was resilient, you know, I always kind of told myself, I just have to keep on marching forward, no matter what is presented ahead of me. You know, I'm just going to keep on marching forward because I've got a bigger vision. I want to leave a legacy. I want to inspire the next generation. So what I'm doing is not just for me, you know, I'm showing other young kids out there that you can come from difficult circumstances and you can defy the odds. So it was bigger than me. Tindar, has the culture of rugby changed over the years? Maybe not just here in South Africa, but, you know, obviously you've been around the world. Have you seen any tangible changes? I have. I have seen tangible changes indeed. And obviously the biggest change came when uh, Rossi was named as, as coach. <laughs> uh, you know, he really changed the whole the whole. Uh, you know, game, changed the whole setup, the team environment, the Springboks. And, uh, you know, he had been a player himself. So there were things that he he still, you know, he, you know, felt um, about changing, you know, even when he was a player. So now that he became a coach, it became a big drive of his to do that. So, you know, the first thing that he did was, you know, address the issue of transformation. And, you know, he kind of took the power off that because uh, a lot of coaches before him, uh, they didn't want to talk about transformation. It was an elephant in the room. It was a big elephant in the room. Nobody wanted to talk about it. It was a, you know, a political issue. And, and But he went you know, for a head-on, addressed it to the team, and he said, we have to achieve a team that is fully representative of the country. And we went on this mission together, and everybody bought into the plan with one common goal, and that's why we were able to, to be so successful. 
I think this actually touches on to the next point because we know 2020 has been challenging. And one of the things that's really happened is that it's magnified some of these social ills. And we've seen how this has been captured in the continuation of hashtags. So some that come to mind is, you know, hashtag niche two, uh, hashtag times up, hashtag climate change, and of course, hashtag black lives matters. And we have seen some of the athletes, you know, taking the knee. Uh, this obviously speaks to the state of the world at the moment. Uh, no, it, it definitely does. Uh, you know, probably what I'm going to say about COVID is that, you know, yes, it had a big negative impact on everyone, but there was also a positive in a way, you know, because, you know, a lot of everybody, you kind of just, you know, take a, kind of take a breath, you know, breather and just look perspectively, you know, what they're doing individually, whether it's actually something they want to do for the future, you know, kind of gave you perspective of what is really important, you know, so I think one of the biggest things for myself was family, spending family time. So I really got to spend time with my kids in a big way. So that was probably one of the biggest positives. And then other, you know, with there's other, you know, campaigns or things that were going on, yes, you know, a lot of issues were being addressed around the world. And I think, you know, Black Lives Matter was probably one of the biggest hashtags out there. And I think, you know, for me, it was more to do with equality and people kind of saying, we want to feel, you know, we want to be treated the same way, we want to be afforded the same opportunities, you know, trying to level the whole ground. So I guess it was a long time coming because a lot of things were just swept underneath the carpet and people were just going on and thinking that it's going to stay the same. So, you know, that lockdown period and this whole situation that happened actually allowed us to address every, you know, all these big elephants, all these things that we've been, you know, kind of keeping to ourselves. So, so I think it was actually good in a way. Uh, certainly. Tendai, let's uh, talk a little bit about the Tendai, the man, life after rugby. Now that you've hung up your boots, I know firsthand that you're a very busy man. We know that you are juggling your studies, business, a foundation. Again, I think this year has taught us to adapt and transition. So how are you managing this transition? How are you juggling all, getting all of these balls that are in the air and doing this juggling act? Uh, it's, uh, it's been quite a challenge for me, you can tell you for the fact, but uh, for me, it's something that I look forward to for a long time, you know. I always try to prepare for life after I'd be in a big way, so it was a seamless transition in a way, because right now, the security company I'm running, I've actually been involved in the security company for about 10 years long, Fidelity, uh, so I'm running a subsidiary to Fidelity called Lindy Security. So, uh, yeah, I kind of knew exactly how the business works, so it wasn't that hard to kind of slot in there. And then the studies, uh, you know, my my pursuit of an MBA <laughs> has been quite daunting <laughs> with any business school, but it's been a growing experience. And I've, I'm about to complete my first year, but uh, it's been really, yeah, it's just been insightful, challenging, but I'm learning so much about the, you know, the business environment and equipping myself with the right tools that I need to actually you know, to, to be successful, to, to lead a company and, you know, yeah, and look after a whole big workforce. So it's been really, really good. But bigger, you know, more exciting thing that I'm doing right now is my foundation work. I just launched the, the Beast Foundation uh, this year and I'm embarking on, you know, empowering the youth 
across the continent, across the African continent, through the platforms of sports, education, and life skills development. So it's a, it's a big journey, and I want to change lives. I want to, you know, create the next, the future beasts, and you know, future rugby players, and and you know, doctors, you name it. So I'm really excited to, you know, to, to do some good work through my foundation. Um, you are a man of many talents, and I think maybe you know, as a side note, some things that people don't know is that you are actually a an, an academic. I think you did your Cambridge A levels, and you got an A for mathematics. So uh, that was one of the things I found out about you. But just a, a bit more on your your business, this transition. How easy or difficult was it getting access to to financing? I know a lot of new entrepreneurs, whenever they talk about starting their own business, that becomes you know one of the the hurdles that they need to get through. So, you know, how was your experience? I was very, very uh, fortunate that uh, one of my mentors, he's a founder and CEO of uh, Fidelity Services Group, uh, Val Bartman. He kind of obviously uh, helped me for a long time, gave me great advice. So he told me uh, when I was done in my career, he was obviously going to help me and, you know, try and create something that is for me, you know, for my future. So this company that I'm running is fully supported and backed by Fidelity. So yeah, so I worked on that uh, relationship for such a long time to make sure that would happen. So yeah, you know, I'm glad that I had the support. So yeah, it's not easy. I know it's not easy being an entrepreneur and going out there and trying to realize your your dream or your plan, you know, because you need, you know, you need that capital to start off with. So it'd be nice, you know, if we could have more you know, entrepreneurs out there. I just want to go back to you know, the story and the narrative around hashtags that we've seen. Uh, another popular one that we've had is the hashtag I'm staying. Uh, so I'm sure for maybe some of those people who don't know, it's been created around people in South Africa who believe that they can still turn things around. And, and because immigration is such a real thing, they think that we definitely can do you know something about this. Now, I know that you're a father and I've recently become a parent, so I now have have a great appreciation of the different perspective that having children can give you. But with South Africa's laundry list of ills and issues, why are you still choosing to stay in South Africa? Uh, well, to me, I've been I've been everywhere around the world, you know, traveled far and wide. <laughs> but I promise you, there's no place like South Africa. There's no place like home for me. <laughs> you know, I, I was living in DC beginning of this year, playing a bit of rugby there. And, you know, I had to come back because our season was scraped. And I promise you, coming home was the the really most exciting thing because we've got so many, so many riches in this country. You know, there's so much that we, we can enjoy. You know, the scenery, the landscapes, the weather, you know, great people, lovely people. Yes, we have our issues. We have crime, we have all of these things that we're not happy about. But the fact of the matter, I think the positives far outweigh the negatives. So, uh, you know, and if we all run away, then who's going to be there to sort out the problems, you know? That's also one thing, you know, I've always been one person to always go, you know, head to head with an issue and resolve it. So I want to be a part of the solution, you know, for what's going on, all the issues that we have, gender-based violence, all these things that we're not happy about, and actually be a part of the, you know, movement for change. So I really believe that the future is bright. The best is ahead of us as a country. We just have to all come together collectively and buy into this plan to really make this country the best it can be. 
But I do have to let you go soon, but I do have to ask you about maybe what your top lesson was for the year 2020. It's been a very challenging year. What are some of your key takeaways from what you've learned? I think uh, I might have mentioned it a bit earlier. So probably the, the best thing that I got from 2020 was in our perspective of what is really the most important you know, thing in my life, the most important pillar, and that is my family. I know for so long, you know, in my career playing rugby, I was always on the road, I was traveling, you know, uh, traveling and getting stuck in camp for weeks on end. So for the first time, I was, you know, at home and just, you know, spending time with my kids, with my wife, and I just really enjoyed that time and got to learn the other side to my kids and really got to, you know, yeah, I really just enjoy them. And so I think that was the biggest takeaway for me, just having that bonding time with my family. I'm grateful for that. Uh, Tendai, I'm going to leave it there, but that won't be it in terms of line of questioning. I know that uh, Trevor wants to jump in here and ask you. We just definitely like to say thank you for you know for joining us this uh, this morning. But Trevor, that's it from me. Over to you. I know that you've got a couple of questions or just one more that you've got for the beast. Yes, great. Thank you to me. And just one question. First of all. Tendai, if you need some economics tutoring in your economics finance module for your MBA, Tumi is on hand. She's really good at it. I can put you forward. My last just question to you, a little bit rugby related, is out of your whole playing career, which coach for you was your favorite coach, if that's the best word? for it and specifically why were they the, your favorite coach or in what way did they influence you in the biggest you know manner uh, i think uh, yeah that's an easy one definitely Rassi, because of how he could relate you know with the players i guess he had been a player himself so he knew exactly how to you know get the best out of you you know he was a great people manager great planner as well so yeah, I really, I really enjoyed his coaching thoroughly and he treated everybody in the squad like adults. You know, there was common ground. He even said that we're not going to have senior players in this team or junior players. Everybody's going to be the same. You know, you're going to be judged on your performance and how you do well on the field. So I think, he, you know, he put, he put the, the, the playing field in a big way and changed the culture of the Springboks, you know, and think that I really, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. I think there's been a carrot that's been dangled in front of me to come back and play in the Lions series next year. <laughs> but now, nah, you know, I've had my time, you know, so, but he's definitely the one push that sticks out there. Great, no, thank you. Yes, well, you, as you showed on top billing, your favorite item is your Lions cap that you had in your cupboard there. Tendai, thank you very, very much for your time this morning. It's been great listening to you, I must say, and uh, wish you good luck with your MBA, with your Fidelity Foundation and everything. And thanks for entertaining us over the last decade. So have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. Appreciate uh, engaging with you guys. It's been a great fun talk. Thank you, Timmy. Thanks, Tendai. So that brings us to an end for the multi-manager webinar today. I'd just like to thank everybody that's been on the call for, for their time. And we hope that you found today interesting. From a Ned Group Investments perspective, we've held as a business over 60 webinars this year, 
I think reaching about 35,000 people over the course of the year. So talking about adapt or die, I think Ned Group certainly adapted this year and it's been amazing some of the webinars that we've had over the course of the last eight or nine months or so. I'd also just like to finally thank my team. To me, Leandra, you guys were amazing. Super proud of my great team here and you did a great job today. And also to Nabila, the marketing team and everybody behind the scenes who makes these things all possible, a big thank you. And finally, as Richard Quest of CNN would say, leading into 2021, I wish everybody hopefully a profitable year next year. Let's see what the year brings ahead. And I'd like to wish everybody a happy and peaceful end of the year, festive season and a great 2021. So thanks everybody and signing off. Netgroup Collective Investments is an authorized collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Netgroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit netgroupinvestments.co.za.